0: You're listening to an ACCA podcast.
1: To begin with, I'd like to sincerely acknowledge the Bunmurang, traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and we extend our respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. It's a great pleasure to welcome Jenny, Jenny to Melbourne, together with Patty Hertling, Deputy Director of Performance Space, and Emily Johnson. First Nations artist and award-winning choreographer based in New York. Together with Performance Space, we're excited to present Emily Johnson's storytelling performance, Blackfish, a fish that never dies tomorrow evening here at ACA. Blackfish is part of the Thank You Bar, a performance work and story of survival developed by Emily that connects ideas of displacement, longing, and language to history, architecture, and igloo myth. Before introducing tonight's lecture, I'd like to also thank our state government partners and the NGV and note that both events, um, tonight and tomorrow, are part of a wider curatorial research program established by ACCA to foster curatorial exchange, First Nations Dialogue in a Global Context, and future opportunities for artists. And I'd also like to acknowledge Paola Bala for her involvement and contributions to this program. So it's a great pleasure to welcome and introduce Jenny, who has been the subject of great critical acclaim for her curatorial brilliance and audacity in presenting and exhibiting performance art which was recognised in 2012 when she received the Yoko Ono Courage Award. Jenny was appointed Performance Space New York's Executive Artistic Director in 2017 and is the organisation's first female director. Prior to joining Performance Space, Jenny was the associate curator at MoMA PS1 in New York, where she established the well-known interdisciplinary series of live programmes, The Sunday Sessions, which featured literally hundreds of artists, including Te'er Temlitz, Justin Vivian Bond and Wu-Tang Clan, as well as new commissions by Ragnar Kjartansson and Anne Himhoff, among many others. In addition to her event-based programming, Jenny has established a considered engagement with performance in the gallery context, organising significant exhibitions such as the New York presentation of Retros- Retrospective by Xavier Leroy in 2014 and Anne Himhoff Deal in 2015. Tonight, Jenny will introduce her vision um, for performance space, an iconic and much loved space which he's reinventing in a new location in the heart of the East Village. Jenny is also committed to developing methodologies for embedding First Nations dialogues within the organisation, including new initiatives such as the program that Emily Johnson is curating for Performance Space in early 2019, which will involve a number of First Nations artists from Australia and elsewhere. So please, without further ado, uh, please welcome Jenny Shanska.
2: Thank you. Um, Thank you, Max. Thank you, Annabelle, and everyone from ACA, Paula, Bella, and um, it's been a wonderful, I think, three days, I I cannot count, (laughs) Um, and very interesting, so I'm excited to be talking about um, Performance Space New York. So as Max said, I've just recently became the first uh, female executive artistic director. It's been about 18 months, and um, before I talk more about my vision, I thought maybe to give you a little historical background. So Performance Space was founded as PS122 almost 40 years ago in the late. Seventies in the East Village in downtown New York City. And uh, it was an empty school building that had been abandoned and a group of artists went in there and started making art. Um, Performance, but also visual art. There were a lot of painters. There's still painting studios in our building. There were filmmakers, poets. Um, It was a very interdisciplinary scene. And um, Throughout the years, um, PS122 launched a lot of artists' careers. And it was really, the East Village back then was a neighborhood where artists lived because the rents were very cheap. And uh, so artists had their inbuilt audience and, and in the beginning it was really artists performing for artists. Um, here are just a few examples, uh, Vaginal Davis um, there, was, there was a lot of queer performance, drag performance. Karen Findlay is someone who started out at PS122 and then became world famous um, with that uh, particular form that stood for PS122 in the 80s. There was the solo um, monologue um, embodying the the <clears throat> dictum that the personal is the political. So people like Karen Findlay or um, Spaulding Gray, someone else did these really political, very personal monologues. Um, Adrian Truscott is an artist of more recent time. Blue Man Group um, had also one of their first performances there. Um, Ethel Eichelberger, I mentioned queer performance, so a lot of drag. Um, Ethel is pretty much the, um, grandmother of of drag performance, very influential. In the background you see Keith Haring and Cookie Muller, so it was a very uh, mixed scene. Dean Moss is still around. We just, um, when we opened the building, showed a new work of his. So I mentioned we were in an abandoned school building. We still are, and um, after about, 35 years, 30 to 35 years, the building was basically deteriorating, and the city of New York did something that um, they don't do a lot, but they um, decided to actually renovate the building for all the art organizations in there. And uh, it was, I think it's now it's 35 million projects, I, I think it was supposed to be little over half of that. And it was supposed to take three years, but it actually took seven years to renovate it. So PS 122 was without a building for seven years and ran festivals in the meantime. But in January, finally, we um, moved back into our newly renovated spaces. We used to be on the ground floor and second floor, which was the old cafeteria in the school, and which happened uh, to have a wood floor, so that's why it became really perfect for a lot of dancers, choreographers, and and um, performers. And now we're on the top floor. That's the the fourth floor, and they built a whole um, other floor and the result is that we have these um, gorgeous theaters now. Our old theaters had columns and was very small compared to this, and now we have a double floor ceiling. We have windows with beautiful um, views. This, this theater holds up to 200 people seated, but as you can see, it's completely flexible, so you can also leave it open, um, but you can easily turn it into a black box. And this is our smaller theater, the nilma Sydney Theater, named after one of your Lance women. You say Lance woman, yeah. Um, and that holds up to 100 people. Um, so I mentioned that we were founded as PS122, which stood for Performance Space 122, but no one ever really said the full name Um, And it was very well-known internationally and among performance people, but in New York, if you tell someone on the street, I work for PS122, I'm the director of PS122, they actually think you run a school because the PS stands for public school. And um, so when I came on board, it was this really transitional moment. There was a new building after seven years, and New leadership and um, there were also a lot of delays still with the construction, so we really took the time to think everything through and and um, think about you know what sh- do we want to keep and what do we want to change and one big and that's what my talk is going to be about like really that vision like what do we want this space to be and to me it it became pretty. Quickly clear that PS122 was very much a code. You had to be part of this scene to understand what this place was about. And, um, and then we tried to introduce having people say performance space, but n- everyone just says perf- PS122. So, with uh, um, our board and advisors, we decided to update the name to Performance Space New York, and the short is Performance Space. And um, to make it more clear also what we're about, that we are about performance. So the short is performance space. And also really in the almost 40 years, our neighborhood had changed so completely. Um, There's been like everywhere else, a lot of gentrification. And really from like the 80s where the artists all lived in the East Village, artists cannot afford to live there anymore. So... They, they have moved to the outer boroughs to Brooklyn or Queens or up to harlem so so we introduced New York as a um, as a actually um, a commitment to the full city and also acknowledgement that we want to be a space for the full city um So then I thought maybe it would be interesting to talk a little bit about the program, but also like core ideas for the vision that we, my colleague, Patty who's the deputy director is is here, that we've been talking about a lot the last year. Some of them we've already put in actions and others are still developing. So one of the core principles um, is artists first, or really put artists at the center, which ultimately really is just going back to where performance space started. As I said, it was a space that was founded by artists for artists. Um, But what often happens in organizations when they grow and when they have to worry about funding and when they build a staff, that sometimes um, other things become more important than the artists, so we're really trying to bring that back and um, with different ideas. But really, ultimately, the two questions or the two things are the question like, what do artists right now in 2018 in New York City need from an organization like ours? Um, I mentioned um, that the neighborhood has changed a lot and. You know, in New York, the, the art funding is very different, so the fact that we' actually in a building where we don't pay rent, we don't get much from um, public funding, but we get spaces in the heart of downtown New York for free. So that's also a huge responsibility. You know, in the late '70s, those spaces were just available. You could walk in there and, do, and build an organization. You can't do that in Manhattan um, anymore. And, um, and then also really listen to artists, which also sounds very um, simple, but also um, is being forgotten a lot. So really ask not only, oh, what do we think, what they need, but really talk to them and ask them, so what do you want performance space actually to look like? And um, So we have, we already introduced a few things um, We want artists, of course, we know all artists need money and space and a platform to show their work. Oops, sorry. Sorry. But also um, finding structures to actually have artists participate um, in decision making in, in governance, so one thing that we already started is that um, we decided that we would like in about three to five years, have a board of directors that's artist-centric, so that 50% of the people on the board actually have a um, creative background, and so we now have five artists on the board, when I came, there were two, two spots on the board. Um, four artists, traditionally, and Kenezer Schall, who's a fantastic theater maker, she was already on the board. And in the last, I think, like seven, eight months or so, we brought four more people. Ishmael Houston Jones is a choreographer who was with the organization since the very beginning. Um, And then again, I mentioned the different funding structures would really depend on board members to contribute. So we have two spots where where artists don't have to contribute on the board, but the rest have to. So Michael Stipe is the singer of R.E.M. Umberto Leon is a um, fashion designer, and he runs a big important um, store in in New York City opening ceremony and Kerstin Brecht is a painter whose practice is very um, involved with performance. But she's in a lucky position that she can actually sell her work for quite some good prices so she she can also support us um, financially. And these are um, all ideas that we've kind of started. They're not really formally in place yet. Um, We're about to build an artist advisory board, I think, which is pretty common for organizations. Um, And then we start working with associated artists. So often, um, or at least in my experience, uh, I know in theaters it's a little different, but I'm coming from a visual art background. You work with an artist and then at least for 10 years you don't do another project because you're supposed to work with other artists. So the idea for associate artists is to really make a commitment and say that we're gonna work at least for say, three years together. And um, of course we show work, we produce work, but also we want associate artists to really um, take part in the building, uh, the creation, or the reinvention of the organization. So to give you a few examples, we had, um, we d- had a new logo, a new, new um, graphic identity, and that was um, created by a visual artist called Sarah Ortmeyer. Um, we have Emily Johnson here. I know we haven't had that official conversation yet, but I consider you <laughs> Um, I mean, she's just a fantastic example of how an artist can actually shape an organization and make you do things that you would have never come up with um, yourself. So when I came on board, Emily was already had a really deep relationship with performance space, and she had done two projects, or one project and then we did one together. And uh, most importantly, she brought the discourse about engaging with indigenous artists to performance space, which I know for you uh, in Australia is not something completely new. In New York City, I mean, I'm European, so I think I'm not also the best example, but if you talk to people about indigenous artists or indigenous Politics—you almost always like get a blank face. Very cultured, uh, intelligent people. So through Emily, really performance space started making a commitment, and also started to understand that it's not something that you can quickly do and say, "Oh, let's invite some um, indigenous artist," and you know, check it. Off the box, but that Emily and I have, you know, we talk on a regular basis, and we keep working together. And she keeps bringing projects to performance space. And then I was invited here, and she happened to be in Australia, so we said, you know, we decided. So she's going to do performance tomorrow, which um, I urge you to come back for. And then in January, which is also a reason why we're here. She's bringing another First Nations Dialogue um, delegation from Australia to performance space, and, and this time we'll actually will show performances. So that's a, Emily in a way is a great example about, about an associate artist, what someone can bring to the organization. But we're also going very broad. I mentioned someone who designed our logo We're also working with a chef, like someone who cooks and thinks about um, bringing people together around tables and uh, drinking, eating. And um, I'll talk a little bit more later, but that's also um, an interesting point. And then we did something that I've been doing in um, for a while also in my previous position, to actually invite artists to do programming. So I know f- this show has also been done with Paula. No, it's also not that unusual, but really again, like artists can bring something to the organization because they think out- outside the box. They don't take anything for granted. It's really interesting and, and again, it's a way to being introduced to things that you wouldn't come- be able to come up by yourself. So for the first season that we just finished, we had a few artists who were given the space and the budget. Um, this is Tiona nikia Mclauden, a fairly young or emerging artist who's originally from the South, but lives in Philadelphia. And this is a project called CLAP, where she's been researching the role of CLAPs. Um, in the Lower East Side, which was very important, especially um, in the 80s, Um, late 70s, 80s, when you were going out, you were always seeing performance art. So really that performance of that area that we come from, um, a lot of that was born in clubs. And and Tiona programmed the space. She rebuilt a club with, with a group of artists and then programmed it and had parties there. And today in, in New York, no one can afford the rent for running a club, and let alone um, the neighbors would never let you. They will call the police and you know, complain. So, so it's really also about you know, the history and how things have changed. However, New York being New York, there's still a lot of parties, but they don't belong to clubs anymore. They travel around the city so hosts have become really important. This is something we did with uh, Norwegian artist, Bjarne Melgaard. Um, so for the first season, I wanted to focus on the East Village, our neighborhood, and the history. And there was one figure that immediately came to mind. That's Kathy Acker, who was an experimental writer, feminist, punk, punk writer. I mean, she had so many different... Um, people were describing her in so many different terms, but she was very important and she kind of had fallen off the map a little bit and now has a renaissance. So, and I knew Biana was a big Kathy Acker fan and I invited him and together we um, we curated a group show, an exhibition, which is also a first for our organization to do um, exhibitions in the theaters. And he contributed this um, Muppet Show, the yellow one is uh, Kathy Ecker, and this. the other one's are actually his family, his mom, his dad, and his sister. And, um, and that was, he, it was great working with him. And then a theater maker from New York, Tina Satter, who's very influenced by some of Kathy's texts. She, for example, put together a program of um, readings, performances, music. Um, So that's, I think, it about involving artists. More in depth and really putting that 1st There They've already been in this year a few times where I had to make a decision and where it really helped to say, okay, this is actually what's more important than, you know, being on good terms with the press or making a lot of money, but, you know, thinking first about what we can contribute to the artistic community speaking of communities um, the second point i wanted to talk to about is communities and i'm choosing that word very deliberately not talking about audience even though we consider audience of one part of our community of course and also it's plural so it's not like one community it's many communities and like all organizations, we already have a lot of communities, like some core, really involved people, and then you know, some people maybe come once a year, or audiences, or people who are being um, taken along by friends. And um, great pleasure of my job has been that there is already this existing community of artists, um, like almost four generations, and they all are really invested, and they all feel like that, that place already belongs to them, and they have opinions about what it should be, and, and there is this really rich history, which I find beautiful, it's not always easy, but um, so that's, that's an existing community. Then our actual community where we are in the East Village which is also very interesting. I talked about it's changing a lot traditionally. It's an immigrant neighborhood, Um, a lot of Latino. I mean, throughout the centuries, different kind of immigrant groups have lived there, but most recently, it's been Latinos. And then, um, so we're trying to engage with all these Different groups, and then it grows larger and larger, and the audience. And the big question is, um, like in so many theaters, but also experimental venues, that it's the that ultimately the the community of artists or of audience is pretty homogenous. So usually white middle class, um, and and our space. It's maybe a little better than others, but not where it should be and where it could be, especially in a city like New York, where I think, um, I think like white um, um, population is about 35% or so, and everyone else is really people of colors or immigrants. Um, So, that's something that we've talked a lot about, thought a lot about. Also, in terms of um, generation, like age groups, um, our audience is pretty young, but around like 35 is probably the average 30 to 35. And um, so, for the inaugural season, um, I really thought it was important to bring actually people who grew up in the neighborhood and also younger people. Um, So there's this fantastic activist collective called Brujas, which is Spanish for witches. They're uh, mainly girls, and all their founding members were actually born and raised on the Lower East Side. And, um, and I talked to them and I said, you know, what, how, how do we get your kids, uh, your friends in here to come? And it was also very interesting to talk to them because they, had, um, they literally grew up four or five blocks from where we are. And they've known this building all their life, but they had no idea that there was a performance space in there. And PS 122 for them was public school 122. So we came up to the idea um, with the idea to build a skate park. Uh, The East Village in the 90s was like the center of skateboarding in New York City, and then again, you know, all the empty lots disappeared through development and neighbors calling the police because of um, noise complaints. So. We did build, together with the designer, they designed the skate park out of our decking. Like that's our staging with like concrete slabs on top of it. And then they had a three um, week long residency and programmed it. There was a lot of programming. They're like, I mentioned they're activists, so it was also a lot about, um, you know, activating their friends and um, so, and it was great. I mean, we had, I think, 700 people or so in there and all, like, mid, early, mid-twenties, some younger, some a little older. And um, and they had never been there. They didn't know we were there. I would have no idea if they come back, but, you know, 5% of them come back. That would be a huge um, success, in my opinion. Um, another community that, actually really has to do with our building. There's the Alliance for Positive Change, which used to be called the AIDS Service Center. So I mentioned that there was a lot of queer performance always, and um, of course we were really hit hard by the AIDS crisis, our organization. A lot of um, the starting, the founding artists, I mean, it was really a big part of the history of our our organization. So in the early mid-90s, the AIDS service center moved in there, and they're working with people from the neighborhood. So that, again, there was an interest to really bring in different communities from the neighborhood. And I had worked with, do you know what a kicky ball is? You know, voguing, so it's like the younger generation. And I had worked with them at PS1, and I kind of, I don't know, had a hinge that some people were actually in the Kiki scene, and it was true, like a lot of their clients are part of the Kiki scene. So we invited them, they're our neighbors, they're in the building, and um, gave them the space and, and a production um, Budget and also prize money. Like you, if you want to have a good ball, you want to have some money for people to take home. And it was—I was sadly traveling, but it was um, really great, and um, and they were so happy. And and all all the all the money that we made that night, we we um, we gave to them as a, a contribution. So that's something actually we could imagine doing again and to build that community. And then someone that Emily brought to us, um, the Lenape Center, so where performance space is situated on Lenapehoking, which is the homeland of the Lenape people on the island of Manahata. Um, You probably know that New York was one of the first colonies, so they're really... Um, no, or almost no Lenape people who survived, but the tribe was displaced a lot of time and and is spread out through America. A lot of them are in Ohio, and um, Emily introduced us in the project that she did with us two summers ago, or last summer. My sense of time is completely... (laughs) Um, so that's Hadrian Kumas on the left, um, and Joe Baker on the right, and in between is um, an artist, uh, Nathan Young from Ohio, of the Delaware Tribe, which is another name for Lenape. And um, so as I said, the first season was, was all about the East Village, and we thought it would be great to open it actually with the, peop- the real people from the East Village or the Lenape. And they invited Nathan to come and he did a performance lecture about the history of the Delaware people. And again, like that's something that does not happen in New York. And it was really, um, it felt just really right and good. And, and a lot of people came out for it and um, it's something that we, you know, want to continue that relationship. uh, But I'm not going to talk, Max asked me if I'm going to talk about mythologies of um, working with First Nation artists, and I I feel, if anything, I'm here to learn from what you've been doing, so I don't feel um, in that situation yet. So I mentioned the chef, the associate artist, the chef, um, creating community, Um, happens a lot around the table or over drinks or over parties so we're we're thinking a lot about um, hospitality and not as a side um, thought or afterthought or something you you know you have to do for your gala fundraiser but really use food you know also when you work with immigrants it's a great start to you know sit down at a table and eat someone's food and tell stories about that. And really this way to bring these many different communities that we're trying to reach out to and feel also included, if you give someone food. Um, there's a lot of um, criticism or the feeling that a lot of people feel like they don't belong into a theater or into an experimental art organization. So to break down these barriers we are planning. We have already started but we're really planning to work with food and hospitality and hopefully eventually we'll have a restaurant. Um, I know it's something that in Europe and I I have the feeling here already exists. In America if you you go to the theater you see a show and then everyone leaves. So we really, um, it's also one of the reasons we're doing exhibitions to actually be open during the day and so that people can come, spend time before a show and after a show. Um, and that was from our opening dinner. I just put this here because it's, you know, it's many, I think three different generations, people from, like artists from all different backgrounds. All the way on the left is Angela, who is the chef Who's working with us? She's becoming a little bit of a celebrity chef or something like that. Which she's very busy, but it also helps because she can get us stuff that we wouldn't get. Um, Niv Acosta in white, like kneeling, is another person I think of as associate artist um, who's been working with us. She's. He's going to do a big project in in January when the first Nations dialogues happen. and then last but not least, but I put it um, purposefully on third uh, uh, on the third place as performance in like the art form itself, which often in a lot of places that I worked, the program was always the most important thing, so the the art. Uh, or the the outcome, and we um, for us, it is very important, but it doesn 't come first, so we really want to first, as I said, like listen to the artists, build communities, engage communities and um, so yeah, performance um, question why performance now um, I said we really want to engage with our local community, but ultimately we see ourselves also part of the international performance community, and it seems like a really transitional or trans- transformative moment for performance. Um, when I started out ten years ago, as Max said, at, I come from—I mean, I started working with performance in a museum at MoMA in New York. Um, so it's a, it's a particular angle, but um, performance was really, so there was theater and dance and downtown performance, and then there was visual art, so it seemed to be m- way more separated. And in the visual art performance was really the, <clears throat> the side program, the exotic thing, A lot of people didn't know what to do with it. And um, for example, today we had um, a conversation at the NGV. And you know they're building this new um, contemporary space. And it was completely self-understood that they're considering a performance program and building spaces that work for performance. And really 10 years ago, there there were maybe two museums in the world. Who would even do that? And, um, and a lot of people always ask me why that is. Then at the other end, I think in New York, the theater is always in a difficult position because there's very little to no state funding. It's all privately funded, and then there's Broadway which makes money with ticket sales and ultimately is entertainment. So a lot of things um, happening and and we really wanna be part of that discourse and making a strong argument why performance um, is important and why now, because we're in, I think, socially, politically, um, the way we think about identity in a very transitional moment, and I think performance is a very potent art form to negotiate these questions and these changes. And um, so, so that's that's a big focus, of course, and as I said, we wanna be part of the really local people on our block, and at the same time also take part in the international discourse and ultimately that's what most artists at least that we interact with are really interested to to have that kind of framing so to the program we introduced um, two new ideas I don't know how new but they are really but something that performance space didn't do before is like thematic programming. So we have two seasons a year and each season has a theme that can be very broad. Um, I mentioned that we um, started with the East Village, so our, our own history and we were so... That, that neighborhood is so important, like it really um, shaped who we are, but also we shaped it, in a way. And, um, and then the other idea, or which is also something that goes back to our very beginning, is the interdisciplinarity. So we are performance-based, and everything we do has to do with performance. But we also, as I said, do exhibitions and you know, if we show a sculpture in the gallery, it kind of is there because it relates um, to performance, or we do music, which um, other than food, I've also learned is a really good way to bring in people that would usually not think about coming in. Um, so this is, the, this is the inaugural season that we just um, finished about the East Village. I mentioned we started with the Lenape Center. Oh, sorry. And then um, we had an Rama, which is the longest running program of performance space. It's a kind of a variety show, so younger artists, more established artists, um, presenting short excerpts of what they're working on. And we did it like huge in all our theaters, all our spaces. Sybil Kempson sitting there took over our offices and made a an fantastic uh, piece in there that you came up with that same very same day or something like that, yeah. Um, and it was such a wonderful opening um, celebration because all these generations and all these people were there. I talked about the focus on Kathy Ecker which had a group exhibition and a performance program. There was screening, and we read a whole novel called *Blood and Guts* in high school, which is the the novel that put her on the map. And it takes place in the East Village. And we had all like writers, a lot of them who knew her, coming, and we read the whole thing in one day. Um, Eve Larese Cohen is a younger conceptual performance artists. We did something on fashion. It's also something we're involved with. Diamanda Galas was one of these icons, PS122 icons. Um, Sarah Mitchelson is another person I could consider thinking of as an associated artist. She has a long, long history. She's a choreographer, really one of the most interesting people working. And um, And she kind of first performed as a dancer at Performance Space and then did her early works there. And she made a new work kind of indirectly reflect. It was about aging. It was fantastic. Talked about Club, Penny Arcade is another um, PS122 icon and we brought back like her most famous piece which also I think came to was shown a lot here in, in Australia. Brujas are the skater people, kickyball. Ball. And then we brought also, so that it was really a mix of new commissions, new work, younger artists, and reaching from fashion to skateboard. And, and then we also brought back um, a piece that premiered in 86 at Performance Space um, with, Dennis Cooper, Ishmael Houston Jones, who joined our board, and uh, basically was one of the earliest uh, works addressing AIDS, um, and it's a, it's a dance work, and we brought that back um, because AIDS, as I said earlier, is such an important part of our history. Um, click. Sorry, I don't know how to get back to... And then, last in my presentation, if I find it, is the post-human series that we just launched, or not launched, announced two days ago which um, if the East Village series looked a little, was a little bit more historic about our neighborhood, this is more, um, if anything, about the future or where human race might be going or is going. And also, ultimately, um, I think deals with theater because theater is such an anthropocentric art form so for example, Shakespeare is always talked about as the inventor of the human. The human is an invention ultimately of the Renaissance. Um, and the human, um, in terms of technology and science is changing very much um, considering like gene technology or artificial intelligence who can really still say where the human ends and what's human and what's, I mean, just with the cell phones, like what? what's really your communication and what's the algorithms on your phone that do the co- communication. So we invited, and then the, the other issue with the human, of course, is that traditionally it's a, it's a white male, heterosexual, highly um, cerebral person, which basically that idea excludes the majority of of the world population. So so we invited artists um, who are pushing those boundaries and blurring the distinction between human and technology or say human and nature, human and animals, And um, so again, it's pretty um, all over the map, starting by Annie Dawson, who we have a long relationship with. She's a theater maker who really pushes the idea of merging of technological theater. Usually when you think of theater and technology, you think of, you know, special effects or like lots of projection, but but Annie takes it much further in the way that she really works with computer algorithms and has made pieces that were completely um, uh, written ultimately by computer algorithms. So that question of, and also then you saw the two computers, sometimes there are no actors either so really like pushing that idea of the human as the center of theater. Mette Ingwertsen is a Danish choreographer who's been working a lot about, on the question of sexuality that used to be very confined to the private and to the body, actually spreading in the publics, being part of commercials and design and so on and so forth. Um, and she 's also someone who organizes conferences that are very um, they can get very cerebral, but they're also very um, engaging and, and sensuous. Then we do another um, group show, which is looks like it 's going to be an installation it 's um, for um, artists of color who found each other. We talked to one of them and then she created that group. And they're thinking about the apocalypse and um, survivalism. There's a huge movement, I don't know if here too, but in America, about people preparing for the apocalypse and they're building little houses that can move everywhere and where they're um, self-contained. And their thing is that they're saying it's, it's, when you research it, it's always like, basically for white people. And then thinking about what, what about queer people of color, what do they do during the apocalypse? And ultimately, um, also they've been living the apocalypse for centuries already and have been surviving. Um, underground Resistance is a techno label from Detroit that um, is very influenced by Afrofuturism and the idea of merging techno music, like very mechanical, created with machines, and there's like this merging of man and machine and been very influential. They're gonna come and talk then. Donna Haraway, in a way, is the thinker behind the post human, even though she doesn't like the term post human. But her cyborg manifesto, some of you might know, was really. One of the most important texts, or where the, this idea comes through then, Kean Gaskin and Sidney O'Neill are from Portland, and they're working with the idea of, um, you know, pushing, or like human consciousness of not being the center of art making, but they're also um, quite, uh, critical of of the idea because ultimately post-human is a very feminist, white feminist um, uh, school of thinking and also in order to be post-human what they say, in order to be post-human you at some point even had to have the status of being human and a lot of people haven't even had that so they're, they're talking about the anti-human, about death and then the before the human, ultimately. And then Ron Athey is like the PS122 icon. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's like this <clears throat> really extreme mutilation art and was very Im- important and and gained a lot of notoriety also in the 90s during the culture wars when the um, American politics went down on the experimental art um, scene and, and um, like took a lot of money and funding away. So he's gone, a lot of his work is about the merging of the human and the gods. Um, and he's doing a work on the um, Asaphal, like the headless figure. And um, I think that's it. So, thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. Um, That was really fantastic. We do have time for a couple of questions, if anyone um, in the audience would like to ask any question. (laughs) (laughs) Well. <laughs> oh. thanks, <Kelly.
2: laughs> Hi, thanks for that Some exciting times for the performance space. I was just wondering if you could perhaps outline a little bit of your background. You mentioned that um, you were working with performance in the museum sector and then into a
3: more experimental performance space that has more of a kind of theatre and dance background and
2: just Mm -hmm. to talk a little bit about what your journey's been to lead you across those two chasms. Yeah, thank you for that because Annabelle asked me to speak about that and I kind of forgot. So, um, I started working um, in the visual art world in 2006 and first in a... um, place called Kunstwerke in Berlin. And then I started working at MoMA in uh, New York as a curatorial assistant. And that was the time where there was a lot of change and um, they founded their first performance department. MoMA is like divided in by art forms, So there's a painting and sculpture and a photography and a film department. And so they founded a performance department, and it was, um, I happened, literally, I I mean, I was always interested in performance, but I happened to be there and they asked me, do you want to do that? So um, it was quite a, I I spoke spoke to Pip this morning because they're starting their performance program at the um, NGV. It was quite interesting because the space was not really prepared for Staging performance, and there it was a lot of um, philosophical questions, but also a lot of practical questions, and um, I was pretty young and naive, which in hindsight was actually good, I think, and um, you know, made that my school basically, and being in New York so great because you're with generations of performance artists, so I really learned from those artists um, about the art form and and is also where I learned too, that you have to actually ask artists in order to learn. So we started these workshops and invited artists, which was very, for a place like MoMA, which was, had this monolithic, you know, this is the canon and here here you have it. And so it, it um, changed a lot. And also we talked about this this morning really changed the the institution, the way things were run, the way departments interacted with each other. And in a way, um, might might sound a little cliche or something, but it made it more alive and also activated the audience in a whole different way. And, um, and then I did that for maybe five years and then moved over to PS1, which at this point had Become a partner organization, so that's the more contemporary space in in New York City. It's in Queens, and there were, I was asked to build a weekly performance program. So um, every week, and we are, as I said, in Queens. So it's outside of Manhattan. You have to cross the river, which is, you know, takes a lot of convincing to get. And especially in a place like New York where you, you know, there are 20 things every day that you could go to and um, all of them great. And that's, I think, where the interdisciplinarity approach came. Because I learned quickly you don't get the same people out to Queens. If you get someone out to Queens more than twice a year, it's a huge success. And that made me really, like, branch out and... um, engaged with music. Um, who didn't even did stand up, but also fashion, and then also realizing that inviting artists to do the program actually really exposed me to new things that I didn't know. You know, you can just look at so many things, um, and then. But what always bothered me was that every week there was something new, so you could never really engage with this. I think that's where the thematic came a little bit out of that I really felt, oh, wouldn't it be great to really engage with something in more depth and also put the, the projects in more context. And artists actually really like that. I, so we just announced the season and a lot of artists didn't know who else was were in the season and they were really excited and I didn't even know all this Connections. So people often ask me, so what do you bring? Because, yeah, it's now it's a performance space. It's very different. We have like real spaces that are made for performance. We have a team that is specialized on, on, on producing and staging and, and a whole new history, too, which I find really exciting to, again, it's, a, it's again, a learning process. But um, people always ask me, so what do you bring from the visual art world to the performance space? And I think it's this contextualizing. Usually, perform or festivals, you know, it's basic. In the end of the day, what the curator likes right now. So like these artists, and maybe sometimes you know there's a little mini retrospective. But really, like the idea of juxtaposing two artworks which it comes from, from gallery, like you know, from like you put two paintings next to each other and something third happens. So also the spaces, the new spaces lend themselves really well because they're next to each other. So we can have a, if you want exhibition in the one space and we leave the doors open and then you have a theater play in the, in the bigger space. And I don't know if everyone makes the connection, but I think some people do. Like really what's the, you know, how do they interact? But the work's very different, but I enjoy it because it's more communal. Then visual art is is a lot about individual people. So I like the group thing better. And being in the city is also (laughs) Good. <laughs>
3: um, do we have another question Emil
0: thank you Yeah, um, I think we're lucky to have some semblance of state and federal funding in Australia for the arts and I'm curious about your unique challenges in philanthropy and developing innovative funding structures for your organization. So my question is how much of your time is spent searching for funding and developing new funding models? And second question is about, yeah, you mentioned eating food and music as kind of alternate ways to generate interest and funding. So if you could talk a bit more about that. Thank you.
2: Luckily, I was warned I, when I was offered the job I spoke to some people and was the former director of the kitchen which is another performance space and she told me it's like 70% cuz I'm the executive director too and she said 70% is basically fundraising and you know politics and taking care of your staff and you know who orders the toilet paper and <laughs> and then 30% is programming and, but again, like the PS1, the every week, something different was a really good school that I learned to act on ideas quite quickly and, and also include other people to help me do the program. And then I just recently hired Patty, who's the deputy director, and it's one of her main jobs um, to help me fundraise. But it's, it's a lot. I mean, I'm not going to lie, it's, you know, from, I would say, public funding is maybe 20 percent. Again, the fact that we don't pay rent in America is huge, especially in, in that prime real estate area that we're in now. Um, we get a little help with operations, but ultimately we have to, every year again, bring, bring in all the money. and, and Patty also has a, um, she didn't learn that, she was actually a lawyer and a curator. So she has um, a lot of interesting um, new approaches that I think other people don't think about. And, and the, the food and the social part also helps because ultimately a lot of, we have to bring a lot of pri- individuals, so private funding. We're doing pretty well with foundations, because of our long history, and because people acknowledge that it's really an important organization, but individuals, that's like our main focus, and sponsorship, and, um, and again, you know, going back to the artists, and looking to artists, we're actually, um, can I talk about the auction, kind of, right? So, we're asking, <laughs> we're asking, um, you know, there's this, there, there are some art, I mean, only a few, maybe 5% or so, that actually manage to make quite a lot of money with their art. They're the, the people who produce objects. So, um, we're, Patty had the idea of doing a big auction. It's a tradition in America that there's this artist auction. Um, it was actually started with Robert Rauschenberg and John Cage. Um, they acknowledged that with Cunningham versus Cunningham that dancers were basically never had enough money, never made money and that it was kind of unfair. So they, they it was their idea they did an auction where they auctioned ma- mainly paintings and then kind of, I think, financed like three years of Cunningham's company or so. And so that, since then that ha- has become a little bit of a tra- tradition, but we're now planning a big auction where we actually go to the big auction houses. We're, we're working with Sotheby's. And the pitch is saying, you know, you're an artist, you live in New York, you benefit from organizations like ours. Organizations like ours are not being supported the way they should be, would you give us one of your big paintings? <laughs> <laughs> and, and surprisingly, many say yes. So we're working on it. That's like one idea where um, s- sponsorship, it's a little hit and miss, more miss than hit. Like that used to be also more, corporations used to be way more involved in art funding and but we're trying that too yeah
3: have one question over here
0: I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit more about the food and the way that that interacts with
2: the organisation and how it works um I mean, to give you an example, we had a big opening dinner, which is nothing unusual. Um, but we, we worked with a chef, like Angela Dimayuga, who really thinks about her practice. I mean, when you talk to her, it's like talking to an artist about their art. And, um, and we also... Um, It was a little bit based on the idea of a symposium, so the old idea, not the boring academic today idea where you have water and, if you're lucky, like a dry cookie or something, but like really this like flowing wine and you know good food and philosophical conversation, and um, we invited you know a lot of people who. were involved with making the, the new spaces happening, but also a lot of people of the community. And then we had um, maybe five artists or so from different generations and different backgrounds getting up during the dinner and talking about their hopes and wishes. You were one of them, yeah. Um, for the organization, and really, the idea I knew like the whole board would be there, a lot of funders would be there, to have them really listen. Because I, I, re- I spoke about this earlier that I'm always amazed how little artists are actually being listened to about things that actually concern them very much. Um, so, that was an idea. We really want to um, uh, have a restaurant. Uh, which is a lot of red tape, um, and then and then involving again communities. Um, we started doing something with like queer Latino. They have like this cooking. What what is it called? Tres leches, exactly. So it's it's a um, fairly affordable. You come, you get really good Latin food, and there's music and a party. And again, it's a way to bring people into the building and to really um, break down this barrier that often art organizations have where, you know, as I said, like these, these skater kids, they never felt invited. I mean, it would have never occurred to them to come in. So in this, this case, we, we did it with skateboarding and, and music. But um, yeah, music is the other... Thing that where people stop thinking and differentiating, or parties. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's a whole art form, like relational aesthetics. So a lot of those ideas of that a dinner can actually also be a piece of art because it's transformative. Like after you've sat down with someone and ate with someone, you have a different relationship with a person.
3: Jenny, you've shown um, how you've transformed performance space and how you've worked with dance and music and theater and performance in so many ways and divested your curatorial agency to communities and in the ways that shows some of the limitation of the traditional gallery space. I was just wondering, would, would you ever go back to a big gallery?
2: I don't know, no, no, I like it it actually a lot, much more than I thought. But I also, also because I'm the director now so I can do what I want. (laughs) So I don't know if it's because, if it's museum or theater, it's just being, like not having to ask, it's good.
3: Thank you, Uh, please. Uh, we
0: have one last question. Um, so this may be slightly open-ended, but you just sort of established uh, the, the, the dichotomy between a museum and a theater. I could be wrong in saying this, but MoMA was really the, f- the first large-scale institution to buy like ephemeral works and performance works. So I'm curious a- about how spaces like performance space or the kitchen are able to compete with the new museum trend of buying performance and also specifically around museums engaging with performance and programming specifically as it relates to a kind of neoliberal um, like experience economy. So I'm curious about how your shift from MoMA to a specifically performance space has, if you've yeah. like encountered these questions. Around it.
2: I mean, I had a step in between PS1 is a little bit, you know, MoMA is this big white cube um, authoritarian organization, and then PS1 was way more experimental, if you want, or playful, and didn't have a collection either. So I think, as far as I know, it was actually the Tate, they started collecting way earlier than, I mean, you know, three, four years earlier. But, Yeah, that's what we did. I mean, that was a big part of my job at MoMA was thinking about how to incorporate um, performance uh, or how to acquire performance and what that even means. You know, because there's this ambition that um, if you bring something into a museum's collection, that it needs to be uh, performable if you want in 100, 200, 300 years from now. Um, So the neoliberal, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why I also really like the theater, like performance-based theater, because it doesn't have, I mean, a lot of, if you wanna be cynical, um, a lot of why people, museums are so crazy about performances, of course, because it brings audience right, you go and see a show once, but if you have a performance program, you might go twice, three times. Um, I like to be a little bit more idealistic that there are also other reasons, and as I said earlier, it really was a game changer for the museum, so I was there, I was at MoMA five years and then at PS1 five years, but they're a partner organization, so I still was very much involved, and I really a lot changed um, over those years. It wasn't just because they started doing performance, but it was really opening up and, you know, not doing things as usual, which is the problem with institutions, right? There's institutionalize, like you have to, um, you start, you stop questioning things, why you do the things you do. You just do them because you've always done it like that. So, so performance in a way was a great tool to break that open a little bit. Um, But, you know, also the scale is completely different. We, We fit 200 people max seated. If we use both spaces, I think our capacity is 600. That's like one gallery at MoMA or You know, so, um, and then really this community that PS1 had a little bit, but because we were not in a neighborhood where people pass through, it was a little harder, but really to be part of of many communities and and people stopping by and people having a stake, especially artists, in, in what you do. Did that answer your question? Yeah, good. Okay.
3: Thank you, Jenny. And um, I don't mean thanking Jenny for her generous talk. <laughs>
0: Thank you. you have been listening to an ACCA podcast, recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, Subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.